Hebrews chapter 11. I remember when I was a teenager, um, I played on different soccer teams and not professionally, sorry. Um, you know, just rec leagues, uh, pay 35 bucks and play kind of thing. But I remember one summer, uh, I was so excited because the coach of my regular season team decided to have an all-star team and we were going to go and travel around the area and play against um, other teams like uh, a summer league. And I'm thinking, this is going to be great. All-star league, we're going to have the best players of all the teams in our, in our league and we're going to travel around and, and, uh, and play. We did not win one game the entire summer. It was the opposite of being undefeated. We were defeated. <laughs> it was terrible. And, uh, and I wanted to quit. And uh, it was the first time I ever pulled a hamstring, and I didn't do it on purpose. I was actually trying to get the, get the ball, and I didn't stretch out properly, and the ball was up here, and my leg was trying to get up there, and anyway, pulled it. I was out for a game or two. Man, I wanted to quit. And, um, and of course, it teaches you character, teaches you a lot of things, didn't quit. But the point is, is it is not fun losing. I hate losing. And sometimes in the Christian life, we can feel like we're losing. By following Christ and living the life of faith, we can feel like that we're on the defeated team instead of the undefeated team. The fact of the matter is, the scripture tells us we're on the undefeated team. Scripture tells us that we're overcomers. Scripture tells us that we've already won. With Christ, we have overcome. We've overcome death because we've accepted Christ as our Savior. So when we die as Christians, we're immediately going to heaven. We've already won that. We have won the victory over sin. Now, Jesus won that victory <clears throat> Excuse me, on the cross. So when we talk about victory over temptation, we're talking about victory over the temptation to sin. And we need to understand this from the perspective of we have already won. But in order to sit in that victory, in order to experience the victory of temptation, we need to make sure that we are following the path to victory that God has laid out in his word. We cannot experience the victory that God gave us through Christ on the cross if we're not actually doing what he's instructed us to do in scripture. There is a path of being victorious. And that's what this sermon series is talking about. The first lesson that we talked about last week was to be vigilant against sin. We have to be very guarded and cautious against sin, against temptation. 
And I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't here. But the second sermon that we're going to talk about, and this is the I, is imagine the consequences. Imagine the consequences. If we're going to have victory over temptation, we need to imagine the consequences. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Let's pray and ask God to bless. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach. Pray, God, that you would bless your word as we look at imagining the consequences to our behavior. Lord, help us not to grow weary in well-doing. Help us to rest in the victory that you've given to us. Or perhaps somebody is struggling with a particular temptation or an addiction or perhaps a temptation to walk away from Christianity. Perhaps somebody is being tempted to not trust you as their savior. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see through the consequences of our behavior. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Imagine the consequences. We have here a photo of the man who invented the test dummies. And he, his teacher was actually one of the ones that helped to invent the atomic bomb that was used in World War II. And uh, very, very, very smart individual up until this time that he invented these test dummies. These are actually computers, essentially what they are. It's a computer that looks like a human. And the the most modern ones nowadays, they take more than 20,000 data points. And of course, test dummies are put into vehicles and then they crash the vehicles. They want to see how safe is this vehicle? Uh, one of the reasons why they, this particular inventor decided to come up with the idea of a test dummy was during the 50s and 60s and getting into the 70s as well, there, the, the, the automobile fatalities were terrible. Many people didn't wear seatbelts, for one, uh, and then the cars were not designed to protect the driver and passengers uh, upon impact. And up until that time, when they did try to use any form of um, a test dummy, so to speak, they would use two things. And this is all they had at the time. They would use um, animals, which we don't want to even think about, or they would use cadavers, which we don't want to think about that either, (laughs) Um, And so this guy said, away with that, let's get something that you can use over and over and over again that actually supplies data. And so, of course, the very first test dummies were very uh, crude by today's standards. Uh, They had like aluminum ribs and they kind of had like some, you know, various plasticky 
cartilage kind of a thing. And, and nowadays, uh, they're very advanced and they've saved probably millions of lives. Um, and so when we think about test dummies, we think, well, we need to take this vehicle that someone is trying to update or maybe they're coming out with a new model. And even though it looks really nice on the outside, right, with a beautiful paint job and leather interior and heated seats, right? Praise God for heated seats in Toronto. Amen. Um, what really matters is if, if we get into an accident, What's going to happen? Am I going to be okay? Or can I be as safe as possible in an accident? And that's what test dummies tell you. Test dummies help car companies to imagine the consequences. It's not just the goal to make a beautiful vehicle. It's okay. Well, if something unfortunate happens to this beautiful vehicle, what happens to the people inside? We're looking at a story in Hebrews eleven twenty five, and it gives us just a few short verses about a man that we're familiar with, a prophet. His name's Moses. We know Moses was born in Egypt. His parents were slaves. All of his people were slaves. The Hebrew people were slaves to the Egyptians, and they were forced to do hard labor. Moses was born, and it was at a time when Pharaoh was afraid that the Hebrews would rise up against him, either ally themselves with another army and fight against him, or they would rise up themselves and overcome the Egyptian taskmasters. And so he instituted a law that required the midwives to kill the baby boys. And so Moses was hid when he was born. He was taken as a small infant and he was put into a small little boat, a wicker basket. And he was hid on the Nile River, which when you know a little bit about the Nile River and the crocodiles and all that, doesn't seem like a safe place. But anyway, he was put in this little boat and he was crying. His sister was watching over him. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter had come down to the river to bathe and she heard the cry of the infant. And so she went and found him and took him out. And that's what the name Moses mean was drawn out or drawn out of the water. And so here comes his sister Miriam and says, do you want me to get a nurse for this baby? And of course she supplies Moses's own mother as the nurse. Praise the Lord for that. And we know that during this time, that Moses was being nursed by his mother and brought up, that she was teaching him about God, teaching him about Jehovah God. And if I can just say a word of encouragement to the mothers and fathers who may be listening or future fathers, it is not a waste of time to teach small children about how much God loves them. Moses, at certain times in his life, it did not reflect that early childhood upbringing. By the way, it also shows us how important early childhood is, even from three or 4,000 years ago, plus. Moses, when he was weaned of his mother, was then taken and raised in Pharaoh's palace 
as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Can you imagine? Knowing that his family were living in poverty, that they were slaves, and yet he was being raised in a palace. This was the most advanced civilization in that area, in that corner of the world at the time. All of the advancements of civilization in that particular area were all at Pharaoh's fingertips. And he lived like that until, we, until he was 40 years old. Then we know when he was 40 years old, he tried to defend a Hebrew that was being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. And in trying to defend him, he killed the Egyptian. He wasn't an Egyptian himself. He knew that Pharaoh would be very angry. And so he fled. He, he ran away into the wilderness And there he was able to find a wife. He was a shepherd and he lived there for 40 years. So 40 years he lived in Egypt, in the palace, 40 years in the wilderness. Then he comes back as a prophet. But it says here in the verses, it kind of supplies a little bit of information about Moses And it tells us the real reason why he forsook the palace. Because when he was trying to defend that man and he killed the Egyptian, that was his first steps in coming out of palace life. He made that choice. And of course, in his very clumsy and blundering way in trying to do God's will and his own strength, he ends up killing this Egyptian. But it teaches us in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Before we get into more of the lesson, we need to understand that if we are going to imagine the consequences, we're going to have to imagine the consequences by faith. We cannot look at the world and imagine the consequences of falling to temptation. Why? Because they don't really tell you the truth about temptation. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt. If we are going to live a life of victory, it's going to be by faith. It's not going to be by sight. We have got to be so cautious in Googling what kind of decision we should make. We have to be so cautious in not just believing the YouTube ad We have to be so cautious in in just listening to what our friends may say or our new acquaintances. Why? Are they living by faith? Because here's what happens in the world and here's what ad companies do and here's what people who are trying to make money off of you making the wrong decision will do. They will only focus on the pleasure they will never focus on the consequences. 
Guys, I grew up in church, as many of you have or some of you have. I remember hearing pastors preach this same type of sermon when I was just a wee lad. I remember the old preachers used to preach about beer commercials. And of course, back then, most of the time, it was like a billboard. It was in the back of a a magazine or it was a cigarette. They don't do cigarette advertisements near as much as they used to. It was always someone that was gorgeous. Some beautiful model. More than one is even better. Again, pearly white teeth. You can't have stained teeth and get anybody to, you can't have the nicotine stained teeth if you're going to advertise cigarettes, <laughs> right? <laughs> what do they show? They always show the beginning of the story. They don't show the end of the story. And anytime we want to question whether or not God loves us, God's love is strong enough to give you the end of the story. The world doesn't do that. The world only convinces you how pleasurable it is. The world will only convince you it is your right. The world will only convince you if they really loved you, they wouldn't tell you no. We, 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 the world wants to tell us There is no such thing as temptation. It's only choices. Unfortunate choices, maybe, sometimes. The world wants to tell us nothing is wrong. Or very, very few things are wrong. Very few things are wrong. And we never use the word sin. We've got to understand the world wants to paint God like Everything is sin. God won't let you do anything. I remember hearing a sermon one time and I, it's always stuck in my mind about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden. How many trees were they not allowed to eat? Tell me. One. I don't know how big the garden was. It it, it could have been as big as Toronto. It could have been maybe the size of this room. I don't know. I mean, we would think it would be a pretty large place. Many trees. The Bible says they could eat any fruit. Now, I'm imagining, and I love fruit, and there's nothing better than eating fruit straight from the tree. Vine ripened. Right? Is there anything worse than going to the grocery store and spending your money on fruit that looks beautiful. And after that first bite, you're like, ugh. And you take the whole bag of apples. And you drop them in the garbage. Terrible. They had the whole Garden of Eden. And God said, you can eat of any tree except for one. And the world wants to focus on the pleasure of the one. And God says, why don't you focus on the fact that I created dozens of varieties? Now we have many different countries represented here in the room, praise the Lord. And there are different fruits that are 
that come from different countries. And I, and I imagine all of those fruits existed back then and probably more. And they probably tasted better. And we don't ever read in Scripture about there even being seasons in the Garden of Eden. There was just amazing fruit all the time straight from the vine. You didn't have to worry about refrigeration. You didn't have to worry about the little gnats. You go to get a banana and you pick it up and then all of a sudden the gnat. Right? Frustrating. Guys, listen. If we're going to get victory over temptation, we have to imagine the consequences. And the world wants to focus on the consequence of not enjoying the pleasure of whatever that thing is. And God says, no, you need to imagine the consequences of actually enjoying that thing and what comes after the pleasure. I've never been, uh, I've never been skydiving. It sounds like a lot of fun to me. To some people, it's like, Pastor, you're crazy. That's insane. But the adrenaline rush, jumping out of the plane. <laughs> but it's only fun if you have a parachute. If you don't have a parachute, it's fun until it's not. Guys, we have got to start thinking about the temptation to sin as skydiving without a parachute. It's fun until it's not. Sure, it's fun to commit adultery. No one would do it if it wasn't fun. Sure, it's fun to get high. Sure, it's fun to go get drunk. Excuse me. Sure, it's fun to go steal money. Sure, it's fun to commit fraud. Sure, it's fun to, and just fill in the blank of what, if it wasn't fun, nobody would do it. What about the secret little fun where you try to, you're tempted to not be in church. You're tempted to walk away from the Lord and you think, well, I've kind of got this fear inside. If I do that, things are going to get bad and God's going to, he's going to smush me. But then you finally have an opportunity and you go for it. And you're like, man, I missed church a couple of times and nothing bad happened. You're still free falling. Then you get a little cocky. Oh, they said, yeah. Oh, my, yeah. And they said, nah, yeah. And you're like the fool out there in a lightning storm that's waving something around saying, ah, nothing's going to happen to me. You're still free falling, my friend. Who free falls out of an airplane without a parachute and lives to talk about it? Nobody does. Oh yeah, well I heard this story one time. Uh-huh. And there's always there's always one story out there to try to convince us to go and sow our wild oats and do the thing and have the fun and live for the pleasure in the palace. Look at Exodus. I'm going to go ahead and warn you right now. I'm reading through the Bible from Genesis. 
Right now I'm reading through Exodus. So whenever I preach on Sunday mornings, sometimes and probably every single week, the illustrations and the extra things are going to come from wherever I'm reading. And that's good because that's what's in my heart. Right? It's better than manufacturing something. Amen. So right now I'm reading about Pharaoh. And we talked about Pharaoh in the, in the 10 o'clock. We're talking to talk about him again. And it's just, it's unbelievable with Pharaoh. It's unbelievable that Pharaoh thinks he's ever going to win. Let's go to uh, Exodus. And, and honestly, you can almost go to any chapter and read almost any chapter in the first couple of chapters of Exodus that talk about Pharaoh. There's 10 plagues and you could go to almost any one of them. Look at uh, Exodus 9. We'll look at Exodus 9 and verse 13. Exodus 9. Now they just had the boils, which sound awful, by the way. If you've ever had like a blister on your heel from a bad pair of shoes. Oh, these shoes are beautiful, but I just, you know, I just. You suffer through it because they're, they're incredible. But you, you, you look like you have a condition, right? <laughs> um, and, but anyway, look at the shoes, not the limp. There you go. Amen. All right. So uh, Exodus 9. And look at verse 11. Let's just get a little context here. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. But look, Pharaoh was not an easy guy to work for. Let's just say that, Right? You didn't show up to work. What happens to you? I mean, we don't want to know. But it's like they couldn't come to work. Why? Because they had, these, they had a condition. They had these boils. Pharaoh had them too. And it says, For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence. And thou shalt be cut off from the earth. What's pestilence? What's pestilence? Plagues. Sorry? Plagues, pandemics, disease. So now they have boils. What's coming next? Disease. It, it gets worse and worse and worse. The Lord gave me a thought this morning as I was reading and, and kind of considering. And we've got, we, we, we went to Hebrews and we're talking about Moses leaving the palace. And instead choosing, oh, listen, friends, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God. Rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. When Moses comes back 40 years later, the season of pleasure is over, my friends. Moses could have just as easily been the guy in the palace with boils all over him, standing next to the new Pharaoh. We forget that sometimes. He could have been there with the enemies of God and his heart was hardened 
against the God of heaven. Covered in boils, disease, all of his animals back home are are all killed from the hail and the fire. Goodness, fire falling from, from heaven. And all of the plagues are just unbelievable. And plague after plague after plague. And what happens to the Egyptians and Pharaoh? Their heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Pleasure, and then they suffer for it. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to choose my suffering first by saying I'm not going to do the pleasure. Amen. And then later, what happens? My life gets better because I chose affliction first. We are never going to get victory over temptation if we don't learn to choose affliction first. I'm going to suffer first. I'm going to tell myself no first. I'm going to practice self-discipline. I'm going to practice spirituality. I'm going to practice walking with God. I'm going to practice the discipline of coming to church every single Sunday. Why? I'm choosing affliction first. But look at all those pleasures we're not enjoying. Yeah, that's true. We're not enjoying the pleasure. And Christians do not deny that these things are not pleasurable. We're saying that it's not telling you the end of the story. What happens after the adultery? What happens? Even celebrities and all their riches can't get over it. Sure, you had the thing. Sure, you went and did. Sure, you, you, had, you, you had your fun. The Bible talks about without natural affection in the last days, without natural affection. People want to live like they're perpetually single. Married, kids, but they don't act like it at all. They run away from the responsibility. That, that sounds like fun. Sure, act like you're a child for the rest of your life. Psychologists actually talk about one of the strange things about nowadays is that specifically men or boys, they dress like adolescents for a really long time. It's not a sin to wear sneakers and a t-shirt. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is we live in a culture that says, just have fun. Be a kid. Don't ever let anybody tell you that anything is wrong or that something that you want to do shouldn't be done. If you want to do it, do it. Other pastors in Canada tell me that when their people have mental health issues and they go to a secular counselor, they will ask them. The secular therapist will ask them, are you denying yourself any kind of pleasure? Is there any kind of sexual thing that you really want to do that you're denying yourself? Because maybe that's why you're having mental problems. Secular uh, pastors are telling me that the secular therapist, this happened out in New Brunswick, said, go find somebody in your building. The guy's wife had passed away. Go find somebody in your building. That's the best. The world wants to live from high to high to high to high to high. Go to the therapist. I've got some, some mental health issues. 
The two answers, I'm not making this up. The two answers oftentimes the free therapist will give you is, are you denying yourself sexual pleasure? Or here's some drugs. So now we're a bunch of rock stars. That's the answer. Sex and drugs. That's all we've got. That's my life. What typically happens to a rock star that lives like that? They kill themselves. The drugs, the drugs have so poisoned your brain, you can't think straight. We do realize the nature of addiction is such. And by the way, I'm not trying not to yell at you. I don't have my, my microphone. The batteries are dead. So I'm trying to project so you can hear. But I am excited. We do understand the nature of addiction is such that the first time you try it and you get the high, <laughs> right? The next time, you're, and the next time, and the next time, and the next time, you cannot take the same amount every time and get the same happy feeling. Is that true or not? That's true. Listen, and, and my heart of compassion goes out to them, but that's why you see people that end up living on the street. Why? Because they have taken all of their things that they've owned and they've sold them for their habit. The prodigal son. He took all, listen, don't take what God has given you. I am, I, I'm 40 years old. I've grown up in Christianity. I am shocked, disgusted at the young people whose mothers and fathers have wept and prayed and sacrificed and drove a horrible car that has to be fixed routinely and lived in a cheaper place so that they can have a Christian education. And as soon as they get to be of some kind of age of an adult, they throw it all in their face and play the prodigal and take all that they have been given, like the prodigal son has, and gone off to the far country... And they have wasted their substance with riotous living. God's judgment is going to fall on that young person. And yes, he will invite you back into his loving arms. But my friend, you will have scars. It's astonishing how we lie to ourselves and think that I can have the pleasure of sin and it costs nothing. I don't like this kind of church. I'm going to go to one of those loving churches. The kind of loving churches that only talks about love and never talks to you about the consequences of your actions. How is that love? What kind of father would I be if I let my children play in a busy street? It's your right. No one should ever tell you this is wrong. We do that in life. Companies routinely get sued for millions of dollars. Because they didn't They weren't responsible. 
to test and test and retest. And then some tragedy happens. Or because they knowingly withheld a warning to save money. And we think we can go out there and skydive without a parachute. Listen, the problem is not necessarily sometimes that we think, well, I know there are consequences for playing with sin. But the thing is, is that we think we can still have the pleasure in playing with the sin. We can play with it. Like it's a puppy. Sorry. The puppy comes again. We think it's a puppy and not some 600-pound Bengal tiger. It's the Bengal tiger. Doesn't scripture warn us that Satan is as a roaring lion? He's a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may. There's the permission. Whom he may devour. The permission. We've got to start thinking in terms of, 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 of spiritual warfare. That when I choose to disobey God, I'm giving him permission to devour me and devour my life. Every time I miss church and I could have come, I'm giving him permission. That we not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Oftentimes the very first steps of sin in our life produce a hardness in our heart where we think, I'm okay. Oh, those people are so sensitive about God and the Bible. And I mean, I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just trying to say, I think I can probably live a pretty good life and not be quite as serious as most of some of those church people. You know, I mean, I was raised that way, but you know. What is it, 120 miles an hour, terminal velocity? Is that right? 180 miles an hour? I can't remember. It's less than 200 miles an hour. Terminal velocity. It means when a body's falling from the sky, that's just as fast as it can go. It can't go any faster than that. I don't know what that's like. I've never jumped out of an airplane. I've certainly never jumped out of an airplane without a parachute. But looking... At those little fields that looks like you're looking at Google Earth, right? And the wind and going 120 miles an hour, 180 miles an hour, I don't know, is one of those two. That sounds like it would be so much fun to somebody who likes adrenaline. You cannot play with sin with a parachute. It just doesn't work. It will get you. The wages of sin is death. Well, I'm saved. And so, you know, it's a little different for me because I know I can kind of play with sin and then I can get forgiven. And then, you know, if I die, I'm going to go to heaven anyway. Let's talk to King David about playing with sin. David, you stayed home and you should have gone to war. When the time was that kings went forth to battle, you stayed home. Did he choose comfort and pleasure or did he choose to suffer affliction with the people of God? Don't miss that point. 
with the people of God, with the people of God, with the people of God. Don't ever try to tell me there's a version of Christianity where you not, are not suffering with the people of God. Because the people of God, if they really are the people of God, are suffering. They're not going to the lake on Sunday. They're coming to church. They're not sleeping until 10 every day. They're getting up and reading their Bible. Their eyes are not full of adultery where they're constantly walking around the subways and the stores and looking for somebody that would be, oh man, they went, mm, so tasty that one. Oh, pastor, I can't believe you. Some people's eyes are so full of adultery, all they can think about is sex. That's all they can think about. And you're married. Or you're not. What a tortured existence that is. Every time you get a moment, moment alone, you've got to look at porn on your phone. You've got to go and up your data because you look at it so much. You're always looking for Wi-Fi. Pastor, why are you ripping about this? Because I have had friends recently in the last couple of months that have gotten found out and they're out of the ministry because of this stuff. 80 to 90% of men nowadays are addicted to porn and I, I, I think it's 60 to 70% of women are. And we wonder why people can't come to church. We wonder why they're dead to the things of God. We wonder why prayer has just it's got no zip for me. Why we've got to go to a church that has black lights and fog machines and music that's so loud you can't even hear yourself think. Worship! Worship! Really? Really? Worship in heaven's going to be a Led Zeppelin concert? It is not worship if, if, if you can't have a holy hush. There is loud worship in the Bible and there is quiet, silent worship in the Bible. But I'm afraid that we have this gener- we have we have just deadened our brains so much to sin. We're so hard. We're so hard. We've got to imagine the consequences. We've got to imagine the consequences. Hebrews 11. Verse 25. Choosing. Choosing, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God. than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Victory over temptation is a choice. It's a choice. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. If you're not suffering with the people of God, you are enjoying the pleasures of sin 
for a season. There's two sides to that. Which side are you on today? Everybody bow your heads, please, and close your eyes.